Good morning, everybody. Uh, as the chairman of the MLT, I don't get much time once in a while come up and say, hey, what's going on, and, and, and really thank the Lord for what's happening here. But uh, um, today's one of those days. As most of you remember, uh, you know, approximately three years ago, we went some, through some bad times here at Harmony. Things seemed to be disintegrating before our eyes. Uh, it was a learning experience for all of us. Uh, being just part of the body myself, I didn't know what to do, didn't see any, anything ahead of us. Um, the MLT basically at that time took over by your vote and your support and your prayers. We put some stability to the church with, with, with the focus on, on Jesus and looking for his direction. Again, through your prayers and your support, we finally seem to be coming out of the, uh, what I consider a, a dark time and to a very enlightened time. Um, we had a number of people who helped during the time. Pastor Bricker filled in a long time for us in a very initial real dark time. And uh, the MLT people, and I, I being one of them, uh, I have experienced God's love and, and growth Unfortunately, in a real dismal part of our church, but I depended on him more and more. And I think all of you have, too. Um, we had a number of people step up and take key positions within the church and feeling that the Lord was leading them. And I, I praise that and I thank for that. Again, I thank you for all your prayers. Everything's been seems positive and your support is, is unbelievable. Uh, a couple years ago, we were looking for an interim, and, and Pastor John's name came up, and we talked to him, and none of us really, I mean, I, I'd known Pastor John previous to him coming here, but the rest of us, and himself included, didn't know how this fit would work. I mean, it was, he was an interim, he was going to be an interim, we needed an interim, okay, that, we got that, we got that together, we know that. But we brought, you know, he came in and he was going on the Lord's will and uh, he was going to see how it, how it shook out. And uh, it's been a couple of years and uh, we've, a number of months ago, we asked him to pray about, you know, if he felt the Lord was leading him here. Uh, he said he would. Uh, again, no direction. We, we really didn't know where we were going. And we kept praying and praying and praying, asking for the Lord's guidance. We finally agreed that we should bring them to, your, to a vote to the church, and we did that last week. Uh, it was a great vote. We had a, probably the largest turnout of people to vote that I've ever seen. I've been here you know, 30 plus years, and uh, super, almost, almost 100%. Um, I praise the Lord for that. Again, I thank you for your support. And, and Lord, and, and, and I help, and I know, and I hope the Lord will continue to bless us, and we always have to keep our focus on Jesus Christ in our church. And with that said, I want to introduce our, our new senior pastor, okay? And here it is. Here's Jenny. You got away with it. 
Oh, what are you standing up for? It's not time to sing. Are you sure you haven't made a big mistake here? Too late. So anyway, Dean, you guys aren't off the hook, however, just because I'm hired, you know. So I was thinking of a number of things here. Uh, I came to uh, Trunk or Treat the other night with my backup plan. So that's why I got my hair cut by the military, see? Chaplain Hawko, see that? It's the real thing. No, I didn't sign up, I didn't. Um, so you guys aren't off the hook. The work is just beginning, really. It really is just beginning. And um, I want to tell you one of the really, um, with all of our history and coming out of dark zone, as, as Dean just put it, which I think is appropriate language, um, one of your fortes, you obviously do not engage in age discrimination. <laughs> so... <laughs> this better be God because you're hiring somebody who's got like nine months left before he retires. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and um, I'm also, I appreciate uh, Pastor Bricker's background, others who have stepped in, and I'm not sure about the British vengeance we have around here. <laughs> you know, they never did get over the, uh, the revolution, and, and uh, so I heard I had a little payback last week, but that's okay, brother Derek. Everybody appreciated what you had to say, so thank you. Uh, when I first got here, I was preaching, and do I need to say anything else? Yeah, thank you. Um, I, will, I will express how I feel uh, because I have mixed feelings. Do you understand how I can say that? I mean, I'm encouraged. I have to tell you, 96% vote. I called my, con my consultant and said, this is really shaky. What do you think, you know? That's a little joke. And he was, he was like, he's over in California where, you know, formal means they wear socks. And uh, he said, John, that is, that's amazing, especially in the Northeast. So, but I believe we have an amazing God. And the fact that you responded like that gives me great encouragement because we can do things together with a united mind. There it is. And uh, so, on the other hand, I'm terrified. Not of you, uh, although I, you know, well, maybe a little. <laughs> but just the task is daunting, really, when you think about it. So, appropriate, I think, that today I jump into one of my favorite books. Did anybody guess what book that might be? Yeah, it's in, it's in your bulletin, so you can cheat that way. Um, a lot of people don't spend a lot of time in the Old Testament. Nehemiah is one of the funnest, hope that's a word, funnest books in the Old Testament. And um, when I first came, I did some series out of the Psalms. Anybody remember we did some preaching out of the Revival Psalms? One of them was called, Lord, Take Over Our Makeover. Remember that? And, uh, you know, you know about the makeover TV shows and all of that. Take some wrecked house and, and do things over and all of that. So it's along that line. And here we are now two years later. And it looks like it's time to really ask God to take over our makeover. That was the suggestion that we start praying that way. And now we've come to a point where we have to start doing stuff. 
and uh, making things over. So that's my title today, a mandatory makeover. I believe a mandate from God. And the way I can kind of set this story up, if you listen to the passage being read or you read it in your bulletin, and thank you, Jody, for making that happen, as she had a hard time squeezing that much versage into a little space. By the way, if you do need to get your name on the email list and any of that that, that Don was going on about this morning, this is the young lady to speak to. Do- Jody, could you stand up? She's, she's be- Oh, come on. It's not the end of the world. Thank you, Jody. She's done a good job and uh, delighted to have her filling uh, Dar's shoes. She's uh, fit right in and done a, done a great job. So she's the one to call if you get that voice on the other end of the phone for the church, not the school now, for the church. She's the one you're talking to. Probably a way to explain what we're looking at in this story where you read, you heard read, that um, Nehemiah is working for the enemy. They've been taken captive. The, the Hebrews had been taken captive, remember? And God had spoken to them a long time ago, you better pray for the prosperity of the country to which I'm sending you because you're going to be there a while. And you don't want to be miserable, so you want things to go well. And so... Uh, some of them rose up and became great leaders, like Daniel, who was famous, right? Uh, leader uh, in, the, uh, in the courts of Babylon. Um, and he gets a report, Nehemiah, who is the cupbearer to the king. You notice that little statement at the very end of the passage. He gets a report from his relatives that the people in Israel, in the land of Palestine, are not in wonderful condition. And one of the concerns is the civic situation, namely the wall. Now, in order to grasp that, I want to show you something. Anybody, uh, I know that um, I'm under an assignment to take in a lot more new movies, and uh, I will get to that when I have time. Uh, But anybody uh, seen the film um, uh, King Arthur? All right, that film was based on a questionable history. It may be some of the roots to the myth of the Arthur legend. However, what isn't mythology is that Rome had been the conqueror of the world, the known world, and that in the British Isles there was a wall called Hadrian's Wall. It was actually built in the 2nd century A.D. And what it represents, this is from the movie, this is a, a, a recreation, if you will, of what Hadrian's Wall would look like. Hadrian's Wall was built to separate the civilized Roman Empire from the barbarians who lived up in those terrible places, what we call today Scotland. <laughs> My wife is Scottish, so I love to rub in that they were barbarians, you know. But, uh, and she hardly is at all. So uh, I had the privilege of being there and actually seeing Hadrian's Wall. What's left of it? This is fairly formidable, and it... it uh, is used a lot in the film. It's a major part of the story. However, if you were to go look at Hadrian's Wall, which, by the way, stretched across the thin waistline, what would be the waistline of the British Isles, there's a narrow strip 84 miles across. It's 84 miles long to separate England from Scotland. Here's what it looks like today. (laughs) That guy's spraying for weeds, by the way. Most of it is, um, you know, historical locations that you look at. And you can find it a number of places. And it's interesting. See the sheep uh, sleeping back there? 
against the wall, not the ones walking way back. I have one. If you come to my office, you'll see a picture similar to this that I took of the sheep laying up against the wall in the shade, keeping cool. That's about all it's good for anymore. What that reflects is the glory that was once Rome has collapsed. In fact, the reason that it was built was because the external areas of the Roman Empire were starting to fall apart and rebel and resist Roman authority and taxation and all of that. And so as they were losing their grip, they built the wall trying to solidify their control. But it was pretty much heading downhill from there on. It reflects what was once glorious and now is no longer. Same thing for our brother, Nehemiah. If you were to read the end of Chronicles, Second Chronicles, you'll find at the very last few verses the story that sets everything in place. The children of Israel are going to be taken away into captivity, the Babylonian captivity. And as they're taken, the temple is torn down, the walls and gates of Jerusalem, that fortress are burned and destroyed, and that's how everything's left. And that's still the case now, 70 years later. Some of you may know your history. That empire flowed into what was becoming the Persian Empire. Cyrus the Great came on the scene. They had a different way of operating with international uh, policy. A little bit more civilized, if you will. The Babylonians and the Assyrians. The Assyrians would come and just crush everything. The Babylonians would come in and say, we're taking you captive and we'll transplant you. You can have little villages and towns. Uh, set up your vineyards, set up your butcher shops, set up your shoe repair. Do all of that just like you would have back in Israel and we'll make you happy. You stay happy, we'll stay happy. That's how they would do it. The Persians said... You know what? We want as much moral support as we can get. So we're actually going to send you home to your homeland. And we want you to reestablish your religious background and all of your businesses. Because we want all the gods to be prayed to for us. Isn't that clever? Now, of course, there aren't all these gods. But they thought so back then. So Cyrus said, you know what? All of you Hebrews... We want as many of you as are able, and you'll find that at the very end of Chronicles and also in the beginning of the book of Ezra, the very next part of the story. Everyone who's able has permission to leave. Here's your visas. Go back to Israel, set things up, and by the way, build your temple and start worshiping the Lord, and don't forget to pray for the Persian Empire. Make sure we prosper. Well, a bunch of people left Babylon headed back, which was now the Persian Empire, about 50,000 people headed out. Now think about that. Those people must have had passion about something because, remember, they had been living there 70 years. They had had children and grandchildren. They had businesses. They were established, you know. The mortgage was almost paid off. And now, for what would I leave everything and go back to Israel where my kids never even saw the place. What was driving them? What got Nehemiah all bent out of shape, may I ask? It wasn't just economics. It was a passion for the God of Israel, very clearly 
And that's why Ezra and all of his colleagues, who were the teachers, the scribes in Israel, gathered as many troops as they could. And there were people who had a heart to honor God by doing this. And 50,000 people, children of Israel, servants, families, extended families, went back into the promised land and began to settle in. And after a little while, they forgot one of the reasons they were there. Hey, let's get about the business of establishing the temple. And if you want to read those stories, you'll find them in the book of Ezra. And also, you might remember some of the Old Testament prophets. One guy named Haggai, or Haggai, depending on how you say it. He was the one, you might recognize this, who said, hey, hey, you guys, is it so important for you to build your nice houses? And my house lies in ruins. Let's get about it. And they began to lay the foundation, and everybody was praising God and cheering, and they eventually got the temple up and running, and they had church again. Well, in the meantime, time had gone on. Thirteen years later, Nehemiah gets the word that the wall around Jerusalem, which, think about it, represents protection for this temple, for the people of God is still in ruins. In other words, they're completely at risk. It was kind of the Wild West, if you know what I mean. You have the Persian Empire, but you had local individuals and local people groups who didn't like the fact that the Jews were coming back to their homeland and that they were going to build and that they were going to worship the Lord. And so there was always a certain amount of danger. So when Nehemiah hears the story, he says, this is not good. This doesn't look right because the God of heaven who made heaven and earth and has redeemed his people certainly ought to be able to take care of his children and protect them. This looks awfully risky to me. Now, is anybody making any connections in their minds here with why I would preach out of Nehemiah? The walls are broken down and the gates are burned with fire and we're kind of exposed here and at risk. And so Nehemiah's reaction, which, by the way, is a great study in prayer, sits down and fasts and prays for days, and he's wrestling. The scripture tells us that this happened in the month of Chislev. You all know what I mean? No. Well, I'll fill you in. Next Friday the 13th, a week from out, next Friday the 13th is the first day of Chislev. Just so you know, that gives you about the idea about when the time is going to happen that Nehemiah goes to prayer, and nothing happens until four months later in Nisan is when this little encounter with the king takes place. Now, I didn't have chapter 2 read, so what I'm going to do today is I would like you to take your Bible out of your pew, and if you have um, your own Bible, you can turn to the book of Nehemiah. If you want to use the pew Bible, it's page 234. I'm going to share some verses that back up what I'm teaching from the New Testament or other locations, so you know I'm not making this up. And the main text, just a few verses I'd like to look at from Nehemiah, we will read. We'll look at it, you know, right in our hands. Isn't that a radical idea? You know, like reading the Bible, actually. Can you do that in church? Yeah, okay. Well, because we're going to. All right, so the temple had been rebuilt, worship is instated, however, they're still at risk. And this is how it's relevant. Number one, there's a problem. The wall represents security for the people of God as well as for the worship of God 
at the temple. That's the problem. We don't even know if some of the burnt wall area could have been even second time around attacks of some of the locals who were against them. Because we do know there was stiff opposition. In fact, part of the fun of the story of Nehemiah is that there's stiff opposition to the people of God making progress and reestablishing worship of Jehovah. And so uh, they actually have to take action military-wise later on in the story. Plus, one of the things you have to understand, anybody know the second law of thermodynamics? Everything goes from repair to what? Yeah? If you don't mow your yard for a while, what does it look like? All you have to do is look at my study after about two weeks, right? Anybody know what I mean? The stuff cluttered, piles up, everything gets out. If you don't take action, things slide toward disrepair. Same thing is true in people groups. The morale, the ethos of the children of God there in Jerusalem also slid When you read uh, Ezra and the rest of Nehemiah, you find that they start fudging on things. They start taking advantage of one another. They start sinning. They start sliding. And those are some of the things that both Ezra and Nehemiah had to correct. By the way, I forgot to tell you that Ezra had actually come back with those 50,000 people. And then 13 years later, Nehemiah comes on the scene. So that's the background. So... Your people is the issue. You know, it's kind of like beautiful church buildings that we see around the country or around the world, which are no longer places that the Holy Spirit is welcome. Do you know what I'm talking about? You know, I've shown you some when I've preached other sermons like Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. Gorgeous building. Now it's a mosque. was once a vibrant uh, outpost of Christianity. It's the same idea that the people of God, their place of worship and all of that, there's kind of a decay that has happened that needs to be revitalized. So that's the problem. But it moves us toward the second thing on your fill-in sheet if you are a note keeper, and that is, let me read first verse 3. The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. The issue here is the reproach, that they're at risk. It doesn't look like their God is doing a very good job taking care of them. Nehemiah is concerned about that. Shouldn't there be more happening here? to the glory of God. So it moves us toward this second thing, which is it's your people, God, that you are identified with. Let me take you back a little bit into a story in the Old Testament. Anybody remember when the children of Israel came out of Egypt? Anybody remember that story? Okay, go watch the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. If you haven't read it, that'll refresh your memory of what it's about. The children of Israel come out of Egypt, and as you know, those of you who know the story, they were always happy campers, right? They were always so thrilled to be free, you know? They get out a few miles, something goes wrong, and what happens? Well, you know the story. You know, that's why you're laughing, because, you know, they were anything but crabby, complaining, blasphemous, 
maligning God. Oh, he brought us out here. Now he's going to let us die. This is terrible, you know. This is what would go on. So one day God had had enough. There were several times like that you might have remembered. And in one of those cases, God says to Moses, okay, step back. I'm going to clean him out. I'm going to start over with you. Aren't you glad Moses wasn't like us <laughs> or me? <laughs> really? Start all... No. Here's what happens. Moses says to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for by thy strength thou didst bring up this people from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. They have heard, they have heard that thou, O Lord, art in the midst of this people. For you, Lord, art seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them and you dost go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Isn't that interesting? Moses is saying that's actual history. Sorry if uh, you don't necessarily trust that, but that's what the scripture describes. Now, if thou dost slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of thy fame will say, because the Lord couldn't pull it off. You getting it? Yet Nehemiah's upset at this point. Oh, they're going to say, the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath. Therefore, he slaughtered them in the wilderness. This God is incapable. He's like all the other gods. He gets beaten by different gods. He's not almighty. Are you getting the point? And isn't it interesting that Moses' concern in the Old Testament was what the Gentiles would think about God. We think the New Testament is the only thing talking about evangelism. You're missing great portions of the Old Testament. No, I want them to get the right picture about who you are. So Moses, of course, intercedes and God listens to him. Of course, he knew he was going to listen to him. Yeah. God wasn't surprised. God had his intention to glorify his own name. But that brings us to not only the problem, the wall was broken down, this is an insecure thing, but the honor of God is what was at stake. This is a weird thing. I don't know why God ever chose it to be so, but he identifies himself with his people. Ouch. So it matters how we are. It matters. It's an awesome thing. And by the way, the, the encouragement in that, I mean, it's challenging to me, is it not? It's challenging. But the other side of it is it's comforting that we are described in the Old Testament as the apple of his eye, that he takes personally those who attack his children, those who come against his children. He takes it personally. Isn't that good news? You're awfully quiet. I thought that was good news. Thank you, Jesus. Okay. So that brings to the petition. It brings us to his prayer. And we hear his prayer. I'm not going to go through the whole text, but he says, remember your covenant. You're a God who keeps his promises. Isn't that good news? He keeps his promises. If he says, your sins are forgiven you because you've come to me through the blood of Jesus, he means it. He doesn't change his mind later and say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't like, you know, you didn't have the right grin on your face when you prayed or what. No, it's based on his covenant and his promises. He cannot change his mind on that. And, and the prayer becomes, what about your great name? 
Look down in verse 4 with me. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and was fasting and praying before the Lord of heaven and starts beseeching God on behalf of the people of God for the sake of the name of God. Go down to verse 11 with me. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants. What kind of servants? What's the next line? Who delight to... Revere your name and make your servant uh, successful today and grant him compassion before this man. The petition is, hear us because we seek your glory. Here's what Jesus said to his disciples. You might recognize this. Pray then in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does it say? Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth it is as it is in heaven. What I always have to be careful of is when I'm making requests and praying and saying, God, you really need to do this. <laughs> Am I willing to be part of the answer? Your will be done on earth. Well, and God says, and how about you doing it? Oh, no, I don't want to do that. Gesundheit. <laughs> no. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are the servants who delight to revere your name. They have the right motive. Do you remember when I was being vetted? You're all like, yeah, we're glad those days are over. I was ruthless, right? I was just like, here it is, here it is, here it is. One of the, it was all right, good, because here we go again. (laughs) One of my questions was, Can I honestly say, and and what I'm about to say, you need to know that some of the great churches that we we feed off of sometimes their video casts or their sermons or whatever, the leaders of those places have done exactly what I'm about to say. I asked you, are you willing, if it's the will of God, for God to close the doors on this church, would you submit to it? Bill Hybels got my attention. I heard him praying about how he was on his face when they were in a difficult time. And he said, God, if you're not going to be in this, then just shut it down. Just make it stop. And you know what? I learned how to pray like that. Because it's not yours. Whose is it? It's his. So I just want to share with you. By the way, I suspect he has something else in mind. Otherwise, this might be a short gig. Calm down, Kathy. (laughs) I think he has something else in mind, but here's my point. If I'm not there in my spirit, if I'm not there in my spirit, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm part of the holdup. Don't want to be part of the holdup. So, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a problem. There's a petition for the glory of God. Hear us, Lord, rescue us, and take away this reproach. Rebuild the walls. Take away our bad reputation or whatever it is that has to be fixed. Can you help us, please? That's what he's saying. Then the next thing is, and this is the fun part, God's provision. It really is fun. In my mind, it's fun. Look with me, if you would, at... um, Verse 18a, which has to put you in chapter 2, by the way. We're not going to read through the whole chapter. Let me just tell you what happens. He's standing before the king, 
This is four months later. He has prayed. He has fasted. He probably came to work that morning and the gates of Jerusalem were on his mind again. He's going, oh, crud, that thing's still sitting there. He comes to work like this. None of you have ever come to work like that, I know. And the king sees his cupbearer. Now, you need to understand, why did they have cupbearers? Yeah, because people tried to poison the king, right? So the cupbearer is an extremely honored and trusted, very close, trusted position. Just like Daniel became a big shot, Joseph became a big shot next to Pharaoh. Same deal. He's got the inner ear. But those ancient kings, you reign on their parade, they may say, take them out and kill them. So that's why it says, you can read this later. I come in before the king. I was thinking about Jerusalem. I'm, I'm saying, God, when are you going to act? And the king can see the distress on his face. He says, what's wrong with you? Are you sick? You don't look sick. What's wrong with you? This is sadness of heart. I like the Old Testament language. This is nothing but sadness of heart. That's the way I talk to my wife all the time. This is nothing but sadness of heart. <laughs> and, and Nehemiah says, whoops, I'm scared. I don't want to rain on his parade. Could cost me my head. And he says, I fired up a prayer. Isn't that a good Christian thing to do? Lord, help me out here. That's what he did. Real quick, bullet prayer up to Jesus. He didn't know it was Jesus then, but it was. And the Lord was with him. And he said, this is what's bothering me. I'm burdened for the glory of my king and master in heaven and the people that represent him are dishonored. I'm not happy. And the king says, what do you want? Isn't that awesome? What can I do for you? Now follow with me down in chapter 2, verse 18a. I told them, this is after he's in the land, I told the rulers in Jerusalem how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. God's hand, God's provision was clear. Remember, I already said, this king has in mind, how do I get the political support and positive attitude of these people? So he was already leaning that way anyway, and the timing was just sovereignty. And he gives them a badge, and he gives them the royal credit card, and he sends them back to Israel. That's what happened. Read it. Anything he wants from the royal treasury, any wood that he needs from the royal forest, any of that stuff, he's in charge, and he's got a badge. When he goes into that town and all of those, you know, hoodlums that have some of the local area show up, you say, hey, I'm deputized, you're back off. And he is the governor now. God's provision, perfect timing, both in the political atmosphere of Persia as well as in the timing for the children of Israel, as well as in the timing in the life of this man being cupbearer to the king. No accidents. No accidents in the timing of me being here. No accidents in the timing of what you've been through. There's something God is up to. So there's provision. Sovereignty at work. The final confirmation, if you will. You know, this, this situation for me, 
I, I've shared this before. I am used to hearing clearly, this is what you're supposed to do. I tell you, I have been on autopilot. You know what I mean? No answer. My, my, my answering machine's on. God's not calling in. It's been a unique experience. And I came to this point where I said, God, you're going to have to give me some confirmation. I don't want to tell you what my secret requirement was of the vote, but if it had been below it, I wasn't staying. It was way below, above. <laughs> Aren't you glad? Yeah, it was way... Well, I hope you're glad anyway. So, Because I didn't want to be in confusion either. I said, God, in your sovereignty, you're sovereign. You're sovereign over who shows up, who's mad at me, who likes me, who doesn't like me. You're sovereign over that. Anybody believe stuff like that? Brings an awful lot of rest to your soul. So if it was below a certain thing, I was going to take that as, thus saith the Lord. Ain't working. But it was the other way. So I'm taking that as thus saith the Lord. And your servant's listening. I want to hear. And I believe I'm going to. Because God is up to something. Why pastors are afraid of revitalization. Rain or on leadership. Our favorite little thing that comes on email all the time just to aggravate us. Why are pastors afraid of revitalization? That's what we need, right? The walls need to be rebuilt. There needs to be revitalization. God is the sovereign one who can help us. Substantive... Let me fix my teeth here. Sorry. Substantive changes in a church typically don't take hold until a pastor has been in church for four to five years. The fact, well, I suppose, <laughs> oh, anyway, <laughs> no, I can't, I can't, it's too, da- too dangerous, too dangerous. Up north, we, we, we'd see, you know, people were enjoying worshiping God, and I would always make a joke, like, you know, what's the drugs we hand out, you know, it's like, no, no, see, it's, I told you, it wasn't funny, you shouldn't have made me say it. Revitalization is not something that happens with the snap of a finger. Sometimes I get that impression. I would just plug in the right thing. All of a sudden, everything's going to be fine. It doesn't work that way. You don't revitalize a church in your power. My power, your power, duh. You do it through God's power, which is why, and we were praying this morning before we worshiped, we're going to continue to seek God in prayer because the kingdom goes forward through the finger of God, not through clever programs and advertising or any other hokey. Who can make new birth happen? Only the Holy Spirit. How do we get there? It requires prayer. If there were no risk to church revitalization, every church would be revitalized. <laughs> mm. Much danger. Mm-hmm. You must go in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it requires growth, it, vision. It demands patience. It requires prayer. It requires stick to And it might mean hurting people that you love. What happens when a person's desires are anti the Holy Spirit? What do you do with that? 
and it requires taking a risk. But let me just encourage you. That leads us to our last point, which is purpose. But first, let me encourage you that God's sovereignty is what we lean on to meet our needs. Anybody ever heard of a guy named Hudson Taylor? Hudson Taylor was the founder of the China Inland Mission, which now has another name. But one of his little adages was, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's provision. I do believe that. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's provision. So when we're resource challenge and we pray and nothing happens, maybe there's something we're doing that isn't God's way that we need to correct. But when we're in the zone, that's the way I like to describe it. Sometimes I come home, I have a really good day, the Holy Spirit used me, and I go, I'm in the zone, honey. And then once I say it, I'm out. But anyway, you know, I'm kidding. I'm making a joke. But the point is, when you're in that zone where God is at work and you know you're responding to his spirit, I can anticipate that God will provide what we need for what we're called to do. Not for what we're called not to do, but for what we're called to do. And that's why the scripture says, and let me just show you another verse out of the New Testament. My God, remember this one? shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Great verse. By the way, you all know the rules of interpreting the scripture, right? A context or a text without a context is a pretext. You ever hear that? A text without a context is a pretext. You always have to read the text in its context. What is God saying in that passage? You can't just pull it out and say, oh, God promises to meet my needs. That's what it says, but there's a context. And the context is Paul is speaking to his most sacrificial church, the Philippians, who loved him and gave out of their poverty to support him in the kingdom advance. So they were committed to their own giving and serving Christ. And to them, he says, I'm confident what you need, God is going to provide. So that's where we want to be. We want to be in that zone. Amen? We want to be in that zone. That brings us to the last thing, the purpose. And what I mean by purpose is their purpose. They determined to get something done. Go with me down to chapter 2, verse 18. This is chapter 2, verse 18 on page 234. And you'll see the second half of that verse. Then they said, these are the leaders in Jerusalem. All right. What are we waiting for? Let's arise and build so they put their hands to the good work. There's some better verses about this later on in this book. But they put their hands to the good work. Let's do this, is what they said. They got up and made it happen. One more text out of the New Testament because we're going to need some of this. Can I just say how encouraged I was? By the way, I have to make a comment. I, I saw some photographs of what was happening in here last Sunday. And uh, you do know that there's like a multiple hundred foot perimeter around every voting station. You're not allowed to politic in the, uh, you know, campaign. And so, so anyway, there was a little of that. It was <laughs> I kept the sign. It was so cute. You don't know what I'm talking about? Weren't you here? I wasn't even here. I knew what was going on. Okay, so anyway. Um, they determined 
that they were going to rise up and build. The fact that you rallied the way you did, Dean talking about probably the largest um, outpouring in terms of unifying ourselves and deciding together that he's seen in 30 years. You can do this. Are you following me? We can do this. We say, yeah, but I did it. I'm all done now. No, that was last week. <laughs> we got to keep doing it, right? We got to rise up. We have to break out of some of our comfort zones and say, well, now, the, now they got a pastor. Everything's good. Now I can go back on mental vacation, if you will. I'm not going to build this church. We are, by the grace of God. Here's what the New Testament says when Paul's instructing his disciples in Rome about exercising their gifts and having the mind of Christ and all of that. He says this, be not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Interesting word. What he's basically saying is not being slothful in terms of my commitment and Fervent in spirit could be translated boiling. <laughs> boiling in spirit. It's simply saying enthusiastic about the kingdom. A slave to God. We must cast off any kind of a lax attitude about whether this matters or not. Because it matters. If we're going to do it, we want to do it. Later on you'll see in Nehemiah that people had a mind to work. And some remarkable things take place in the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to park there for a while because I think it's an appropriate text in the next few weeks before we fall into the holidays. Can I give you one more encouragement? Good, because I was going to do it anyway. You knew that. There's a PS to this. See the little PS at the bottom? If you're in chapter 2 still with me, look down, if you would, at verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? He has an answer for them. Basically, get lost. <laughs> but you know what? If you're going to try to do something, especially because we know about your burned walls and your broken down gates, and we know what a terrible reputation you have, and we know all about that. If you're going to try to move forward, you can guarantee there's going to be opposition. You can guarantee Sanballat's going to show up and say, what do you jerks think you're going to do? You guys are so far gone, there is no way. Dude! And the way we win that battle is our walk in humility and reliance upon God. But expect it. Don't be surprised. There's always going to be. I've encountered it. It's going to happen. Revitalization, as Rayner had said in his article, involves risk. But as somebody texted me after they heard about the, my decision to say yes, woo-hoo, <laughs> our eyes are on you, God. You're the one we need, and he's the one we're going to cast our lot in with and ask him to help us. Let me just say this. Uh,
as I close, because we're going to worship, and I think it's appropriate that we look to God in our closing and worship. Um, you know, I am. I was. I think the thing I'm most pleased about is the way the congregation rallied. That really was energizing to have you do that. That it can be done. That we can come together. You do need to know at the same time. When I look at the job ahead of us, it's daunting, and that I'm nervous. You know, I believe God. I believe He's able to do amazing things, but it doesn't mean it's going to be simple or easy. So I'm just encouraging us, we need to lean on God. You need to pray for me. I'm, of course, praying for you. And uh, we're going to cast our lot in with the living God who can rescue us, who can take away our reproach, who can rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, who can set new gates in place and uh, honor himself through his people because he's identified with us. May it be so again. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, I want to thank you, God, for where you've brought us. I thank you for your sovereign hand, and there's no question. All of the circumstances that I've observed for the last three years, three years before I even got here, and then over these last two and now in the last few months, seems like you have something in mind for your glory. And when you're glorified and we're in line with you, the servants who delight to revere your name, that ends up having side benefits for us. It's a blessing for us. It becomes a source of joy. Restore the joy to your people, I pray. In the great name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen and amen.